this is an example of the incoherence of postmodernity, where you make absolute moral claims against other people, all the while pretending not to make absolute moral claims, and then chiding people for making absolute moral claims. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. It's no secret that many Christian kids are intellectually unprepared for the skepticism that they're going to encounter when they go to college or university, specifically in regard to their Christian beliefs. And my guest today is a Bible scholar who's just written a book that he hopes will help. So Dr. Michael Kruger serves as the president and Samuel C. Patterson professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the Charlotte campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. He's written several really great books, and today we're going to talk about his latest, which is called Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Dr. Kruger, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks. Great to be back. Look forward to this conversation. Well, we previously spoke about your book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, and now you're back with an important message, and I think they're connected because we do see so many people deconverting, deconstructing out of their Christian faith, uh, not always into atheism or agnosticism, but oftentimes into a broader sense of spirituality, often into progressive Christianity. And so I wanted to start today by asking you just to give us a little bit of a brief summary of what your book's all about and why you decided to go ahead and write that now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this this book is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's actually my first lay-level book, interestingly. I've um, All my other books are more on the academic side of the spectrum, and this is written, obviously, for college students, but for really anybody who's interested in questions about their faith. And the, the rationale for the book is actually part of my own story. Uh, a lot of my, my uh, readers may not know until they read this book that uh, in my undergraduate years, I actually was in a religion one-on-one class that was really difficult for me, uh, thus the title of the book. And I came in as, to college as a Christian, committed to Christ, um, trying to do my best to follow Jesus in the, in the various places he had me. And I was in a class with a professor that proved to be very persuasive, very convincing, very critical of the Bible and its truth. Um, and that professor's name was Bart Ehrman who many now will recognize as a person who's written over 30 books and is a very significant critic of the Christian faith. So after that happened to me, I had to go on a little intellectual journey myself and figure out, well, what is it that I believe and why do I believe it? And that actually led me to be a biblical scholar, which is what I'm doing now. But then my daughter, my oldest child, Emma, uh, entered the same school as I entered 30 years ago, UNC Chapel Hill. And so she headed off to college. I realized, you know what, now's the time to write the book I always wanted to write and knew needed to be written, which is a book for college students on how to survive exactly that scenario. So I'm really thrilled about it, and I hope it's helpful for college students and really for anybody who's asking questions about the faith. Well, I love the way that the book is structured. Each chapter is essentially a letter that you're writing to your daughter. And I love that because you're not just interacting with the intellectual skeptical claims that she's going to be encountering, but it's this fully orbed fatherly uh, sort of uh, understanding of, look, I know this is probably what you're feeling right now. You've heard this uh, and, and just guiding her through that process. And I think that this is going to be such a helpful book for, especially for parents who have kids going off to college 
And I want to read something from your introduction because I really appreciate that you said this. Uh, You write, no one should be under the illusion, myself included, that this book will somehow keep Christian college students from deconverting. One solitary book, especially as introductory as this one, could never address such a complex and multidimensional issue, nor can it address every intellectual or theological need of the modern Christian college student, but I do hope it can help at least a little bit, a nudge in the right direction, if you will. And I just want to testify to how helpful books like this are, because when I was in a process of deconstruction in a faith crisis, it was your, it was some of your books that really did help. You know, it's not one thing going to answer all of it, but if there's a question, if there's a reason that that deconstruction process starts to happen, you never know what's going to be the thing that the, the college student, or of course I wasn't in college, this happened in a church scenario, but you just never know what that one thing's going to be that will help. And so I appreciate you acknowledge that it's like we're not we're not saying this is a cure-all but this is a really good starting place this is a, a good place to start addressing some of these things which really leads me into my next question which is you know your book is written primarily from an intellectual perspective what do you think are the main factors that are contributing to so many of the deconversions that we're seeing and you know many of them coming from college kids grow up in a Christian home, and then they take an evolutionary biology class or even a New Testament class, and it just really rattles their faith. What do you think are, are the factors involved with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much more work to be done here. Um, you know, my book is sort of a, a solution to a problem after the fact. So I'm writing to college students after they get to college and they realize they're having a faith crisis. But we could ask a deeper question, which you're kind of hinting at here, which is, well, why do so many Christian college students have faith crises? Um, in other words, why this sort of significantly concerning amount of deconversions taking place? I, I think there's a number of possible answers to that question. I hint at some in the introduction of the book. One is, I think this says a lot about the state of the American evangelical church. So we have people growing up in Christian youth groups who presumably teach them the Bible and teach them the gospel, but yet they're not really prepared to face the real world, at least intellectually. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One is, I think a lot of churches, have what you might call sort of a pietistic vision for the Christian life, which is that the most important thing in your Christian life is living like a Christian, being holy. But but, by the way, that's really important. I don't want to pretend that's not important. That's extremely important. But if you come out of a pietistic world, then then behavior is the number one thing. Mm. Um, But but we forget that behavior is connected to beliefs, and they're actually connected to credible beliefs that, that actually are persuasive to people. So if you go off to college convinced I got to live a certain way, and then you get to college, you realize that you don't have any foundation for living that way that makes any sense, then you're not going to live that way. And so what we we forget is that wanting our Christian college students to live like Christians doesn't happen just by telling them to do it. It doesn't happen just by calling them to be holy. It happens by giving them a comprehensive understanding of why they believe what they believe and how it makes sense. So I think there's something missing in the training of young Christians and honestly, adults too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just that young people are missing it. You know, you could be in a church for 40 years and miss it. So yeah. it, it says a lot about the church today. 
It does. And that's interesting you would bring that up because as I'm reading through your book, I'm thinking everybody needs to read this. This this isn't just something that a college kid needs to read, but I think so many Christians do because in many ways, it seems as if the college classroom has come to the home via the internet, through social media, all of the claims of people like Bart Ehrman that you may not have heard. You could go your entire life and never hear something like that. Whereas today, all you have to do is just open Facebook and you're going to probably come across something like that. And I think that there are a lot of Christian parents who might be worried about the philosophy class. They might be worried about the evolutionary biology class. But I like that your book is titled Surviving Religion 101. Maybe give Christian parents who it's been a while since they've been to college, maybe, what are students going to learn on most campuses, secular and sadly, even a lot of Christian campuses? What are they going to learn in a Religion 101 class? Yeah, well, I think a lot of folks who haven't been in college in a long time may be surprised to hear uh, what their students are learning, and they're probably even more surprised if it's a if it's professing to be a Christian college, which you know uh, sometimes when you get down into the weeds, aren't really teaching things necessarily that different than what they might get at a secular school. So, if a person takes sort of an introduction to the New Testament class, which is the kind of class I was in, um, they're going to hear a lot of things. They're going to hear one that the the books of the New Testament were sort of arbitrarily chosen, probably late uh, in the fourth or fifth century by the theological winners. They're going to hear that the books were not written by the people that have names attached to them, um, and that many of them are actually forgeries and what we call pseudonymous works. They're going to hear that it's historically unreliable and fabricated. They're going to hear that it's internally contradictory. Uh, they're going to hear that it's been poorly transmitted. And then here's the new one, and I try to cover this in the book. They will also hear that the content of the Bible or the New Testament or Old Testament, whatever it happens to be, is actually very morally offensive too. And this is the newer argument today. Even back when I was in college, it took a lot of gumption to argue against the Bible morally. Yeah. I mean, you may not think it was historically credible, but when it came to morals, you sort of just admitted, okay, it's the good book. And, you know, it's more, the response was more, don't, 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 don't push your religion on me. But now it's almost reversed. It's the Bible that's the recipient of moral outrage. Yeah. And so now we've got a new moral majority in our country. We have a new we have a new group of fundamentalists in our country. It's just they're not Christians anymore. Yeah, that's um, and very I, true. I think that's a, a point people don't realize. Well, I know that when I was in a progressive Christian context, that was one of the main charges that I encountered that were being brought against the Bible was people would be blog posts were shared and and talks and and videos of the claim basically that as Christians, our job is to read the Bible and reject anything that is immoral. We, we need to look and see if God is portrayed as someone who, for example, might send the Israelites in to uh, you know execute judgment on the Canaanites, that that's genocide, and we need to reject that view of God because God would never do such things. This is a very popular view in progressive Christianity. And so I'd love to camp here for a moment, if we might, because this is your area of expertise. You're a New Testament scholar. These are the types of questions that you've written books about. This is what you teach and, and you specialize in. So you mentioned your class with Bart Ehrman, and so much of that skepticism being pointed toward the Bible. And so let's let's start with the claim that we hear on social media a lot and kids are going to hear in classrooms, and that is that 
you know, ancient scribes, they changed the biblical text thousands of times. Uh, some people even take it further and say, we don't have any way of even knowing that what we have in our laps in a paper Bible is even close to what they originally wrote. So maybe we can start with that claim. How would you, what would be your letter to your daughter on that, on that claim? Well, this is a common claim today, and it's largely due to the work of Armin, actually. Before he wrote uh, his popular book, Misquoting Jesus, most people weren't talking about textual criticism at the lay level, but he sort of made it a popular conversation. Of course, I heard the argument in the class long before he wrote Misquoting Jesus, and I do address it in, in, in my book. Um, one of the letters to my daughter actually addresses exactly this question, which is, didn't the scribes change the text thousands of times? Now, like most objections to the Christian faith, the ones that are the most successful are the ones that are partially true. Mm. And you'll find that a lot of the things that critics raise are actually partially right. And that's true here when it comes to scribal variations. There are scribal variations in our New Testament manuscripts. There's actually thousands of them. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, hundreds of thousands of them when you look at the entire scope of the uh, manuscript witnesses across uh, 2,000 years. Uh, but, but of course, we all know numbers are misleading unless you understand how to interpret them and understand them. And one of the things that I point out in the book is there's nothing scandalous about scribal errors or mistakes. In fact, it was very normal in the ancient world for any scribe who copied a book that he would make mistakes. You'd, you'd leave out a word. You would, you would inverse word order. You'd make some other sort of uh, mistake, not that different than my student papers when they turn them in. And I notice there's errors, right? Um, and what I tell my students is the issue isn't whether there's a lot of those. Uh, the issue is, is there a lot more in New Testament writings and other kinds of writings? And what kind of mistakes are these? And I quickly tell them that the most common kind of mistake we're talking about in terms of scribal slip-ups is just spelling errors. Um, the vast, vast majority of these variations are spelling mistakes, which just tells you people in the ancient world couldn't spell much better than people in the modern world. <laughs> um, and But I tell my students also, if you see a spelling error in a book or an article, does it throw the whole article in the trash in terms of its understandability or that you think now I can't ever know what the author meant. No, you, you, you sort of intuitively repair the spelling mistake, even as you read it. And so this is the way it is with our New Testament manuscripts. We have so many to compare to one another. We have such a reliable uh, scribal tradition as a whole that yes, there's these errors, but we can work our way back very reliably to the original text. And so once again, um, statistics aren't the whole game. And I reassure the reader that we can know what the New Testament says and the New Testament message is intact um, after 2000 years. And so it's a, it's a lot of rhetoric, but I think not much to it when the dust settles. Speaking of rhetoric, one of the things that Bart Ehrman famously said is that there are more variants in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And that can be rattling for a Christian to hear that. How would you respond to that? Yeah, you know, Mark Twain made a joke about statistics. Um, you know, uh, basically, he said there's three kinds of uh, lies. There's lies, there's really bad lies, that's not his word, and then there's statistics. Um, and statistics can be incredibly misleading. That's an incredibly misleading statistic. Um, is it technically true that there's more textual variations than there are words in the New Testament? Yes, there's probably hundreds of thousands of textual variations, and there's, there's, there's uh, a lot more variations than words in the New Testament. What he doesn't tell you about that statistic is that the only reason we know about that many textual variations is because we have so many more manuscript copies of the New Testament than any other book in antiquity. So think about it for a moment. If you only had four copies of the New Testament, how many manuscript variations would you have? Well, not, not that many. But what if you have 5,000 copies of the New Testament? Well, then you're going to have that many more manuscripts to look to that many more variations 
uh, in your manuscript tradition. And so we're actually victims of our own success here. Mm. Because we have so many manuscripts, we can just discover more and more scribal variations and then add them all up. But yeah. what, what would be the real statistic is how many scribal variations are there in a single manuscript, not the collection of thousands over uh, all the generations, which is what he's done. So he's comparing the number of words in our New Testament to all the added up variations, every manuscript over, over uh, 1,500 years. That's, that's, that's very misleading. And at the end of the day, we actually don't have any proportionally more variations in the New Testament than any other ancient writing. In fact, on the contrary, it looks like our scribes are actually much more conscientious and, and copy their books with much more fidelity than most other ancient books. So for someone trying to reason this through, who may, this might be all, all new information to a Christian, maybe grew up in the church and just always trusted the Bible was the word of God. And now they're finding out there's these variations between the manuscripts. How do we make sense of those variations with the doctrine of inerrancy? If we, we were raised believing that the Bible is without error, how does that make sense with the, the scribal variations? Yeah, I get this question a lot from my students, and, and I, I always want to reassure people that you have to make a careful distinction between what inspiration is saying and the implications of textual transmission. So inspiration only has to do with whether what the original authors wrote is true, okay? Um, our claim about inspiration and inerrancy is that that was written under the inspiration of God, and therefore whatever it affirms, it affirms a true thing, Um Textual criticism, though, doesn't deal with that. Textual criticism just asks the question, what did the original author write? So if you have a scribe that gives a variation and you realize it's a later variation and you can work your way back to the original, well, that doesn't affect inspiration and inerrancy because now you know what the original said. And now you can ask the question, well, was what the original said true and right? So the fact that there's quote unquote mistakes by scribes is not the same thing as saying there's a mistake in the original. Um, and I think that is an important distinction that people need to understand. And so when we say the Bible is mistake-free, we're not saying the copying is mistake-free, as if, think about it for a moment, we, are we gonna really suggest that for, for 1,500 years, no scribe ever made a single mistake ever after thousands and thousands of copies? You know, no, no amateur scribe, no child copying a, a, a verse from memory ever, ever made an error? Well, of course not, there's gonna be scribal mistakes, but it's not the same thing as saying that the original wording was wrong in terms of what it said. Uh, and so I don't think this affects inerrancy at all. And I think we can rest assured that whatever God says in the Bible can be trusted. Yeah, that's really helpful. Another claim that gets brought up uh, about the Bible quite often is the idea that certain books were left out of, of our Bibles. Um, and then the books that we do have weren't, you know, quote unquote, picked until centuries after they were written. And I'd love it if you could address that because you've actually written a couple of great books on this topic. Um, but how, how can we think about that question? Like, were the books just picked hundreds of years later and there was just this pool of choices, contradictory choices, and then finally some people sat down and said, okay, these are the ones. Help us unpack that a little. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I bring this up again in the book, and it, as you pointed out, I've also written other more academic books on this subject. So there's a narrative that I tell the reader, and I'll tell college students they're going to hear, and that narrative is that for the first 300, 400 years that Christians didn't have a canon, they didn't really know what to read, it was a literary free-for-all, Everyone was reading their own books. It was only until the fourth century, usually under Constantine, that some sort of uniformity was imposed on the church when he forced the church to accept just the books he wanted. Well, that's a great narrative. And I suppose if someone likes you know, narratives that sound compelling, then that's a compelling one. But the problem with that narrative is it just isn't true. Historically, we know that there was a functioning canon of books long before Constantine. And I make this point 
in a number of my writings. And the best way to summarize it is that there was a core canon uh, in place by the middle of the second century. And that's very soon after the New Testament books had finished being written. We know that John wrote right at the end of the first century. Probably the last book was Revelation. And then we know that by the middle of the second century, there's already a fairly extensive collection of New Testament books that were functioning as a canon. And by by core, I just means about 22 out of the 27 were already in place. And that means four gospels, 13 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, Hebrews, Revelation, that sort of thing was pretty much in place uh, in, in, in the very early stages of the Christian movement. Now, when you realize that, you're thinking to yourself, oh, wait a second. So it really wasn't up for grabs for 300 years. In fact, the only books that were so-called disputed books were just a handful of the smaller books. The rest of the books were fairly well received at an early time. And once you realize the historical data, then you realize, wait a second, it doesn't sound so arbitrary after all. It sounds like the Christians kind of knew what to read for the most part. Um, and the theological trajectory for Christians was already established by those books from the very beginning. So once again, what sounds good rhetorically, what people are going to hear on the internet or read even in some fictional books, uh, once you look at the historical data, that proves not to be the case at all. And I think for, especially for kids going into college, if they're hearing all of this for the first time, from a professor who seems, you, know, you have a, a chapter in your book, my professor seems so much smarter than me. How do we think through that? Uh, you know, what would you say to a college student who's sitting in a class? Because this is how I felt when I was in the, the progressive uh, church in the context of this pastor, bringing all these skeptical claims specifically against the Bible. I just remember thinking, I've never heard any of this before. This guy's obviously really thought this through. He's much smarter than me. He knows a lot more than me. Now, thankfully, I, I the Lord just gave me the good sense to think, well, if he has all that information and he's that smart, somebody else is that smart and has all that same information and has come to a different conclusion. I at least need to hear from that person before I do anything, you know, off the rails or anything. But I, I, I really resonate with that because that's how I felt. And so what would be your, your advice to a college student who's sitting in a New Testament class, even maybe, you know, with, with somebody like an Ehrman where they're like, oh, my goodness, this guy knows so much more than me. Yeah, I, I actually think this is a bigger problem than people realize. You know, we tend to think that, that the college students are hung up on particular historical questions, and, and there's some truth in that, and they need answers to those particular questions. But I, I think the larger problem for most college students, and truthfully for most believers, is just a numbers game. Mm. You just look around and you just think, wait a second, hardly anyone believes what I believe. And, and then in a university setting, you're struck by the fact that most of your fellow students, most of the faculty— the smartest people on the planet with all these degrees behind their name, none of them think I'm right. And so they just come up with a natural question, which is what's the statistical chance that, that I'm right and they're all wrong? And, and you know, if you don't have any answer to that question, that's going to stick in your brain and, and really uh, be a problem. And so what I tell my uh, readers in the book and I tell my students here is you have to understand the way people form their beliefs. We tend to, we tend to think that people form their beliefs about what's true or false based on the facts only. And, and we assume that you just, it's like a scientific experiment. You just put on the white lab coat and go looking for facts and then reach conclusions. And therefore, if smart people who seem to be following the scientific method reach conclusions, they must be right. Well, that would be all good and well if that's how people reach conclusions. But that's not how people reach conclusions. And I point out how many ph philosophers have shown that people don't accept things as true or false simply on the basis of quote-unquote evidence, but rather they base it on what they find acceptable according to their earlier and more foundational worldview. Uh, to put it sort of in just very blunt terms, professors aren't neutral. 
and they enter the discussion with a worldview already there, and that interprets the facts they receive or don't receive. So if they say, I don't believe in the resurrection, I don't believe miracles are impossible, or I don't believe Jesus really did this or that, it's not just a matter that the data points them that way, their worldview points them that way. Um, and so once you realize that people don't believe things just based on facts, well, then suddenly the fact that most people believe something isn't necessarily an evidence that it's true. Um, th- people can believe a lot of things that aren't true. Um, and, 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 and so just understanding the way knowledge works is a key, a key part of that discussion. Yeah, that's good. And, and you just said something really powerful. It's, it's not just the facts, but what they find acceptable. I forget exactly how you worded it, but sort of in, in, in the realm of their previous worldview. And I think that's really true. I think we see that happen a lot, which kind of swings us back around to what we, we, we hinted at earlier, which is this idea that the Bible is presented as something that's actually immoral. The God that's presented, for example, in the Old Testament, according to a lot of skeptical claims, is an immoral monster. This is this is somebody who uh, sanctions genocide and different types of oppression. And I know you have a chapter in your book on this as well. But let's talk about that a bit because I think that really hits to the heart of of how people are determining truth. Well, they they read something and they go, well, that doesn't jive with what I think is moral. That doesn't jive with my previous worldview, and so it must be wrong. How, what would your advice be on that question? Yeah. Um, well, as I pointed out earlier in our discussion today, this is a rather new development, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say new, really, the last 50 years in terms of the way people attack the faith, which is now the moral argument against God or the moral argument against the Bible, which is, it's not just wrong because it's historically or factually wrong, but it's, it's quote unquote wrong because it's morally wrong. Um, and that, that argument's coming up again and again. It's genocide on the one hand. It's the idea that, that uh, Paul hates women on the other hand, or any other thing they find uh, morally problematic. Well, there's two layers to responding to that. One, one layer is to deal with the actual objection and show that they're probably not reading the text correctly or really understanding the internal biblical logic. So on genocide, for example, you know that, that's so misunderstood and misconstrued. I think a lot of headway can be made just helping people understand what God is actually commanding, why he's commanded, and how God works when he deals with sin in the world and how judgment works and so on. That's part of the issue. Uh, but the other the other part of the issue is to help people realize that um, if they're going to make moral claims against the Bible and they're going to stick, they, they've got to have some basis in their worldview for making such moral claims. And here's the irony of the discussion. Most, most people making moral objections to the Bible have never thought about where morality comes from in the first place. Mm. They're just speaking out of their own internal angst over it, they're, the fact that they don't like it, the fact that they're bothered by it. Okay, fair enough, but being bothered by something doesn't make it wrong. Not liking something doesn't make it wrong. Something that's only wrong morally is if it violates some ultimate norm, some ultimate standard for right or wrong in the universe. If it just violates their own personal opinion, then why is that an argument? Um, so if someone just comes to the Bible and says, I don't personally like it, well, that doesn't work as an argument. They have to actually show, not just say, but show that the Bible is violating some moral norm in the universe so that God of the Bible is actually breaking some moral law. Now, of course, that just backs the question up one notch, which is where do these moral laws come from? And the irony is that the non-Christian has never asked that question. He's never forced to account for where moral norms come from. My point in the book is simply ask that question. Mm. To put it another way, it's not just that it's not just Christians who have to account for morality. The non-Christian has to account for morality. Um, and he needs to be asked where he gets it from. And you'll quickly realize is even though he's very quick to make moral claims, he's got no basis in a worldview for making them. In fact, ironically, he's actually kind of borrowing the Christian view, theism, 
um, to make moral claims in order to argue against the Christian view, which is, of course, the irony of the whole thing. Yes, and we see that a lot. And just to give our listeners and viewers a tangible example of this, it might be easy to point to scenarios in which either progressive Christians or even atheists, who tend, by the way, to make a lot of the same claims, might point to the God of the Old Testament and say, well, that's genocide or that's oppression. But even in the New Testament, even the teachings of Jesus, we see people sort of declaring those things immoral. But like you said, without an objective standard of morality, they're just making declarations. And I'm, I pulled up a meme that I just saw recently from a, a popular deconstruction type Instagram page. And this is what it says, and I'd love to get your, your response to this or some thoughts on this. But uh, this meme says, the reason I think the so-called golden rule is toxic. So he's arguing that Jesus saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is toxic. I think it's toxic because it still centers yourself as the judge of someone else's lived experience. Doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you is still entirely self-centered because it's evaluating their needs through the lens of your own needs. Treating others according to their preference and needs, not yours, is where actual empathy begins. What do you think about that? Well, it's totally internally contradictory. So the person just said that you have to treat person according to their needs, but he's insisting that, that you have to follow his rules to do it. That's right. In other words, he's, he's saying, let me tell you how religion really ought to work. Let me tell you how you really care for somebody. Let me tell you how it's really supposed to be. All you Christians with your golden rule, you're just wrong. Here's how it really works. By the way, all the way trying to pretend like you can't go telling people they're wrong. So he wants to pretend like other people create meaning, but he just wants you to do it according to his terms. But that means he's the one creating the meaning. Yeah. Um, so this is this is an example of the incoherence of postmodernity, where you make absolute moral claims against other people, all the while pretending not to make absolute moral claims, and then chiding people for making absolute moral claims. Yes. Um, and you, after a while, you're wondering, are you even listening to yourself? Like after a while, you're like, you, you're, you're not even listening to your own talk because it's so inconsistent. One second you're saying one thing and then the other second you're saying the other. And I, I try to point those inconsistencies out in, in my book. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so interesting because implicit in this meme is that, well, it's not even just implicit. It's, it's stated that, you know, the golden rule is toxic, but empathy is good. Uh, self-centeredness is bad. I mean, they're just sort of starting with this base of moral claims without, like you said, pointing to an objective standard to justify making those claims. And that's why I really appreciate what you have to say in your book about morality. And you have a couple chapters on what I think is possibly the most heavy claims that college kids are going to encounter when they go on campuses. I mean, all of us encounter this on social media. And that's the charge that Christian morals, especially as they relate to sexuality and to identity, these aren't just wrong. Like Christians haven't just gotten these wrong, but, but kids going to college are going to be told those are actually hateful. They're intolerant. Those views are actually harming people. And so I imagine that this is potentially the most difficult claim for a young Christian student to stand up under. And so I'd love for you to just share on that a little bit of what, what advice do you write in your letter to your daughter uh, in that chapter? You've got a couple chapters on this, specifically about homosexuality mm -hmm. and then morality in general. Yeah, this is a hard one. I mean, of all the moral issues— the sexuality issue in all its little iterations is just really complicated because people don't see it as a, as a moral question kind of out there. They see it as, as personal to them. So as soon as you declare that behavior to be wrong, that you, you know, it's, it's considered a personal attack. 
And by the way, that's new too in the last 50 years. It used mm -hmm. to be you could actually have an argument about these things without people pretending that you were, weren't allowed to make these discussions or, or make these arguments. And now if it's seen as a personal attack, you're not allowed to have these discussions. So one of the pieces of advice I, I, I give my daughter in the book and anybody who reads it is that, look, you just have to realize you're, you're stepping into some difficult territory here. You're going to want to work really hard to be gentle uh, and patient and respectful. doesn't mean you back down off your view, but it does mean that you, you realize the personal nature with which people take these questions is, is going to be tricky. Uh, the second piece of advice I give, and I think this is going to be a, a key thing, is don't, in these discussions about moral questions, particularly sexuality questions, it's, you don't want to get hung up on the particular issue. Um, so, for example, take homosexual marriage as an issue. Okay, you, you could have a full-throated debate about homosexual marriage with your dorm, uh, your whole mate or your, 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 your dorm mate or whatever, and, and maybe there's a place for that at some point. But I think instead of getting caught up in a particular sexual uh, debate over a particular issue like that, the better question is to, is to ask your non-Christian friend how they know anything is right or wrong. So it's not, it's not so much whether homosexual marriage is right or wrong. How do you know anything is right or wrong? So take, take the sexuality issue off the table for the moment, sort of defuse everything, and just talk about morality in general, and ask your non-Christian friend to explain how they know things are right or wrong in the first place. That'll change the tone of the debate very quickly, because it'll, first of all, expose that they have no grounds for making moral claims. They just make them. They're just utterly arbitrary what they prefer, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't a coherent argument. But the other thing it'll do is it'll, it kind of diffuses the issue of the sexuality. Because now you're no longer debating homosexual marriage or whatever it happens to be, transgenderism. Now you're just debating how you know anything is right or wrong in general. And I think that'll bear more fruit. Yeah. I think we've made a mistake in most of our argument by trying to just debate the issue without debating the foundations for the issue. Yeah. We need to get back to the foundations for the issue. That's where the real headway is going to get made. That's good. And speaking of intolerant and uh, some of the claims that are brought against Christian morality, some of Christian doctrine, just foundational doctrine, is sort of seen by secular culture as being intolerant, hateful, uh, fear-based. And so, you know, you, you almost can't talk about sending a kid off to college without really having a discussion about the Christian doctrine of hell. And in your book, you sort of make this connection that— Oftentimes, people's misunderstandings about hell or maybe their attitude toward hell is based on a misunderstanding of who God actually is. I'd love if you could expound on that a little bit because I think that you're really hitting the nail on the head there that if you don't really know who God is, you won't understand hell. Yeah, so one of the themes I'm, I repeat throughout the book is what people find believable or unbelievable, right or wrong, or uh, true or false is actually dependent on earlier beliefs they already hold, what we call a worldview. And the same is true for the doctrine of hell. When someone is confronted with the doctrine of hell, most people are gonna find it ludicrous, ridiculous, outrageous, and offensive. Now, why do they think that? Well, based on, again, the prior beliefs they already hold. And what are those prior beliefs? Well, one is what they think God is like and what they think they're like. And the average person thinks God is sort of this, if he exists at all, sort of a big kind of you know, fuzzy teddy bear, kind of Santa Claus in the sky who just wants you to be happy. Um, and then you're, yourself, what do you think about yourself? Well, I'm a pretty good person as a whole. I make mistakes because I'm human, but, you know, I'm doing my best. Now, if that's your view of God and that's your view of yourself, then hell is ludicrous. Mm. It's absolutely ridiculous. I would agree 100%. Given that starting point, given that worldview, hell would make no sense at all. But, but what if your starting point were wrong? What if, what if someone were not understanding God correctly? What if they weren't understanding themselves correctly? Um, in other words, 
you reject hell because your prior set of beliefs about God and yourself, but if your prior set of beliefs about God and yourself prove to be mistaken, then maybe hell isn't as ludicrous as you think. So in my chapter, I work hard to recalibrate people's perception of God. He's not just like Santa Claus in the sky. He's holy, 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 and very concerned about people violating his law because he's a holy God. And then we are much worse than we think we are. Mm. Um, we think we're just make a mistake now and then. No, we are we are cosmic rebels. Um, um, and, and much more uh, uh, lawbreakers than we realize. And once you get that right, then suddenly hell doesn't seem so ridiculous anymore. And so I just try to point out again that people's visceral reaction is actually because they already hold earlier beliefs. Now, of course, the ironic thing is, do they have any basis for those earlier beliefs? Do they have any way to know what God is like? Here, here's the irony. The non-Christian is like, how dare you Christians say you know what God is like? But you know what's funny? The non-Christian really thinks he knows what God is like. In fact, he's so sure that he knows what God is like, he knows that hell can't possibly exist. Yeah, And so I just want to point out that ironic uh, situation one more time. Yeah, and I love that you call this cosmic treason. And I'd love for you to comment a little bit about that because I just did a, a recorded a podcast on original sin that'll be coming out somewhere around the same time this one does, maybe a week or two before or after. And it's just, it's so interesting to me uh, as I study uh, the rise of theological liberalism, I've been reading about the rise of Unitarianism in the United States and New England. And it seems to always start with a rejection of the idea that we're inherently sinners. Uh, I remember reading about this one theologian that, that was one of the founders of the Unitarian movement, just struggling so deeply to believe that humans are actually sinful. That was the first doctrine to go for him. And then from there, it was just this snowball. Then, then the, the atonement gets knocked down. Then hell gets knocked down. Judgment gets knocked down. Uh, talk a bit about cosmic treason and what, what your message would be to kids going to college. That we need to understand about who we are. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that's going to be the hardest, one of the hardest doctrines to swallow, as you said, is this doctrine of sin. This doctrine that we're rebels because people don't want to think that about themselves. Although, ironically, if they just reflect on human history a little bit, they realize, wait a second, something's really broken yes. about humanity. So there's this weird sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, intentional almost blind spot there to the human condition because you almost have to just stick your head in the sand and, and not look through human history to believe that people are inherently good. But leaving aside that, um, the reality is, is that that's a hard doctrine to swallow. The reason I call it cosmic treason is because you have to understand that that sin is not just, uh, you know, a mistake or a, a stumble, but you are going against the very thing God made you to be. Uh, so sin is ultimately idolatry. It's ultimately worshiping a God other than God. So God has been a faithful God to us. He has loved us like a husband. We have been a wayward bride who's cheated on her spouse and runs off with other men, so to speak, but God continually and patiently goes after us and we reject him and spurn him. That is what sin is more like. Sin isn't just a mistake. Sin is like uh, someone who's unfaithful mm -hmm. uh, to their marriage. They've made vows and they have a husband that's kind to them and, 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 and wants to love them, but they spurn that love and run off with others all the time. That is not accidental. That is not unintentional. That is willful uh, rejection of a loving God. Once you see it that way, you realize, wow, that sin's really bad then. Sin is like a shove it in your face kind of move towards God. And I think once you realize that, and of course realize at the same time God is holy, you realize, I'm in a, I'm in a pickle here. This is a pretty big problem. And it's not solved simply by saying, uh, I'm going to try to do better. You realize you're, you're in a pickle like that. You need atonement, which is really mm. why uh, you need the cross.
Yeah, and in my research with progressive Christianity, what keeps coming up so often in regard to the atonement is this idea of cosmic child abuse. You know, that the uh, holy father that requires the blood sacrifice of his only son, that that implicates his moral character, turning him to uh, a divine abuser of some kind. But I, I think like the point you just made, when we really understand how deeply sinful we are, the atonement all of a sudden becomes really quite beautiful. I knew that when I was going through my faith crisis, I knew if there was one thing I knew, I knew that I needed the blood of Jesus to cover my sins. I knew that I was a sinner. And I think that that is something that gets so lost when our eyes get off of that and we start to think, oh, I'm not so bad. I, you know, I'm not as bad as that person or that person. But I think that's why this concept of uh, cosmic treason is so powerful because it really helps us understand these aren't just little kind of like little white lies we might say. These, this, these are like offenses against a holy God. And we have to really understand all of those things together, God's holiness. And, and, uh, and that's why he has wrath for sin. And so I, I love that you sort of expound upon that in the books, because this book covers a lot of a lot of areas. You've got apologetic areas of like science versus faith, miracles, biblical reliability, morality. You're covering so much theological ground. Um, and so I, I want to ask you about miracles because growing up in church, you know, we, we do the coloring pages and we sing songs about Jonah and the whale. We, we color pages of Jesus healing people, uh, the resurrection. And it all seems really normal when you're a kid growing up in church, when that's what everybody else believes. But then you get out into the world and you start to realize, oh, wow, like people think this is kind of out there. And, and so, uh, I think that that could be a real struggle for college kids too. And you have a you have a, a chapter on this as well. What would you want to say to college kids about miracles? I mean, because frankly, what we believe to the world seems kind of weird in some spots. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know you're adding to the list of many things we believe here that the world has trouble with. Um, you know, we talked about atonement; they don't believe that. Hell, they don't believe that. Um, we talked about uh, morality issues; they don't believe that. And then you get to this issue, you know. Um, on miracles. And again, they're not going to believe that. Uh, you know, I return again to, to one of my prior points is, okay, so if someone rejects miracles, um, which is what non-Christians typically do, notice again, they're not rejecting it based on evidence. They're basing it on prior beliefs. In other words, if they say they don't believe in miracles, they're, they're basing that off on a prior worldview that says miracles are impossible. At that point, you just have to simply probe. How do you know Miracles are impossible. Um, and here's where the worldview falls apart pretty quickly. If you ask your non-Christian friend uh, why he doesn't believe in miracles, he'll tell you miracles are impossible. And then when you say, well, why do you think miracles are impossible? He'll say, well, because I've never seen one. And then when you say, well, what about all the thousands of people throughout history and even in the modern day who claim to have seen one? But then he says, well, they're all wrong. And you're like, well, how do you know they're all wrong? And then the answer is, well, because miracles are impossible. And you realize it's just a big circle. And I want to point out a couple of things about that circular argument. First, that it is circular. You're just simply starting with what you are. You just, you just say miracles are impossible, and you're going to conclude that miracles are impossible. It's not a very good argument. But the bigger problem in that, in that um, response that I want to point out is just how incredibly uh, narrow and dogmatic it is. Notice what the, what, the, what the skeptic has to do there. He has to say, everybody else is wrong except me. All those thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people throughout history, who claim to have seen a miracle? Well, all of them are wrong, but I'm right. Now, wh what I love about that is that usually it's the Christian who's portrayed as being dogmatic and claiming that they're right and everyone else is wrong. But here, here you have the non-Christian doing it. 
He's saying, no, 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 they're all, they're all, they're all mistaken and wrong and, and you know, simpletons. But I, I figured it out. Miracles are impossible. And I just find that to be an, an, an incredible hubris. And it has no basis in fact. They cannot show that miracles are impossible. They have no evidence that miracles are impossible. Uh, they simply want to believe it, and, and, uh, but they have no evidence for it. Yeah. And so as you talk through some of these topics in your book, I love the way you close it out because I think what you've put your finger on is something that really identifies a shift in thinking, especially among people today. And that's that people are sort of not as concerned anymore whether or not something is true, but they're more concerned about whether or not it works, if it makes them feel good, if it makes them thrive. Uh, even reading some of the progressive Christian books on how to interpret the Bible, uh, they will say, you know, reject the things that do harm, embrace the things that lead you toward wholeness. But of course, underneath all that is you're sort of determining what that is. And and I always make the point, like, I'm glad I don't let my son decide whether or not it's making him whole to go to the dentist because, you know, he would most likely not choose to go, which of course we know would cause all kinds of deeper problems that would cause him more pain later. Um, but leaving it up to ourselves to decide what works for me, what makes me feel happy, what makes me, according to my own definitions, thrive, um, I think that's a really dangerous way to go about uh, identifying what your worldview is. So so share with us a bit about how you kind of close the whole thing out with your postscript. And the chapter is called, What Do I Do If I Feel Like Christianity Just Isn't Working For Me? Yeah, this was an important chapter, and I thought it was the right one to end the book on. Um, when I had a draft of the book, I sent it around to a number of college ministers I know. Mm. And one of the repeated themes I got back, which was, hey, we love what you've written, but but just one thought. And that is a lot of the college students today that we see reject the faith, they're not rejecting it because it's not true. Um, they, they're not even concerned about true versus untrue um, or historically accurate versus historically inaccurate. They're, they're, they're concerned about what's existentially satisfying for them, mm. what, what quote unquote works for them. So I knew I needed a chapter on that. And, you know, I start off by first correcting some misunderstandings. The first thing I wanted to make clear is that we don't believe something is true just because it works. And this is the point you just made. You're, you're going to end up down some really wacky paths if you think that experience determines truth. However, the opposite is true. Christianity doesn't, isn't, isn't true because it works, but it is work, does work because it's true. Um, in other words, we expect Christianity produce fruit to produce existential satisfaction, to produce um, uh, a lot of those sort of um, what we might call sort of satisfying aspects of the Christian life because Christ is, is satisfying. That said, though, that doesn't mean every phase of your Christian life is that way. And it doesn't mean that every time you wake up in the morning, you feel very existentially satisfied, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, Christian life is hard. Mm. And one of the things I, I wanted to point out there is that if, if, if people are only Christians because it made their life better, then no one would be Christians. It doesn't always make your life better, at least in a worldly sense. It can make your life more fulfilling, certainly, and more rich, but it often leads to persecution. It often leads to suffering. It often leads to difficulty. Um, it causes all kinds of you know, circumstantial problems. So you can't say you know, Christianity always leads to a better life unless you end up at the health-wealth gospel. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense in which you have to just reckon with the fact that there'll be points in your life where things seem broken. Um, you, you find out that your pastor is, a, is cheating on his wife or that he abuses people in the church or that the church is profoundly broken or done awful things or that sometimes you know, your, your Christian life just seems like it's, it's just uh, uninspiring and other things look better. But you have to actually bedrock yourself in what's true and to know that it does matter if Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then you weather out those ups and downs 
knowing that at the end of the day, um, you know, that, that you will ultimately find ultimate satisfaction in Christ, even if it doesn't feel like it at the moment. Um, and that's an important lesson for college students. That's an important lesson for, for everybody. Yeah, that's a good word. And in a moment, we're going to continue this conversation uh, with our Patreon supporters. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. You can check out the different tiers. If you want to ask the questions that we ask our guests for the bonus content, then you can select, I believe it's tier three, and you can be a part of a private uh, Patreon-only Facebook group. We have great discussions in there, uh, monthly live streams, and then you get to ask the questions that we ask our guests for the bonus content. So definitely check that out. But Dr. Kruger, as we close out this portion of our discussion, um, ultimately speaking, what word would you want to leave Christian parents with who are deciding, man, how am I going to navigate these waters with my student who might be even just a sophomore, junior, senior in high school as we look toward those college years? What's your advice to them? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, first, you know, don't panic. Uh, one, one of the things I try to say in the introduction of my book is I don't want to create in students or in parents some deep-seated pessimism or fear or skepticism about being at a secular university as if, you know, every professor is Darth Vader uh, trying to take away your child and every student group's uh, inquisition trying to, you know, string them up or something like this. I don't think that's the case. And so I think they, they don't have to go into this thinking that, you know, the world's about to end. On the flip side, I would encourage parents to don't be naive either and think that, well, my child's different. You know, my child, this would never happen to my child. My child is, you know, a strong Christian and therefore there's never a danger. No, it's a dangerous road out there. I quote the, the, the line in the Fellowship of the Ring where, where Bilbo tells Frodo, you know, when you step out your door on the path, it's a dangerous path. You better be careful. You never know where you're going to be swept off to and you have to take it seriously. And so I encourage parents, don't scare your child, but, but also take it seriously. And, you know, it may sound like a cliche, but I think one piece of advice I have is I think they ought to read this book together with their college student. Um, I, the college student should read it, and I think they should read it with them. And I, I, I think that I know how you're going to answer this because of what you wrote in your introduction to your book. But uh, obviously, you're confident enough that your daughter is going to be going to the same school you went to. So, um, you know, would you advise parents to to sort of steer their kids away from college, or do you think there's there's just a valid path for Christian kids to go to college. What would you say to that? Yeah, my, my, my daughter is right now a sophomore at UNC Chapel Hill, the very place I was, and she's she's doing great. Um, you know, look, Christ, Christian parents have a decision about sending their kids to a secular school and a Christian school. And obviously, there's lots of different factors into that, 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 that every, every parent needs to make their own decision on that. Um, but I think I would say this is that there's many secular schools that have great campus fellowships mm. uh, and a lot of great Christian students on campus that, that bind together and really can find themselves growing uh, stronger in their faith, even in the midst of a hostile world. In fact, I would argue that it's even because they're in the midst of a hostile world that they often grow mm. um, and that those challenges really do increase uh, their their ability to withstand things and actually makes them grow up faster. So I think that's an advantage somewhat and sometimes. That's a good um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have Emma there and, uh, and she's doing great. Awesome. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Michael Kruger, for spending time with us today. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe, click the bell icon. It lets you know every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms on iTunes or Google or Spotify, be sure and leave a good review. It helps get the word out. If you found out about this podcast from social media, 
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, give us a retweet or a like and a, and a share and a comment. All of that helps with algorithms to get the message out to more people. Thanks so much for listening and watching, and we'll see you next time.